I'd like to invite you to open up to Luke chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, there's one sitting in front of you. You're welcome to use that. So Luke chapter 8 is where we are at. As Rob just prayed, um, God's Word is alive and active. And God's Word is effectual. Uh, We just came back last night from a camping trip. And each morning uh, around uh, some camping chairs, we sat and, and we sort of had this devotional theme this week of looking at our words. So we just looked in the very middle of your Bible is a book called Proverbs, and we just looked at what Proverbs had to say about um, about our words, kind of our use of words. So we looked about how words can pierce like a sword. You think about that; it cuts to the inmost being. Some of some of us have word wounds that you know have healed up. The scars just sort of minimal, but really it got inside of us. And words also can bring life. And we talked about kind words. We talked about the idea that a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word, like gasoline, it stirs up the fire all the more. And, and causes a, a bigger problem than was there to begin with. We got to see God's word on display um, while camping. Uh, two days ago, um, the, the boss man of the campground came around in his big intimidating golf cart as he drove by. He's kind of looking around, you know, and he cruised by and I was out there and he made eye contact with me, recognizing that he wanted to talk to me. So I kind of approached him and here's what he said. He said, you know, if the fire, sir, if, if the National Forest Service comes around, they'll write you up as a, as a ticket for your Jeep being a little bit off the, the uh, pavement there. And uh, I said, got it. Yep. And he goes, yeah, they consider that vegetation. I'm like, okay, got it. Thank you. Good deal. Super short exchange. I went and got my keys. I moved my car so that it was on the pavement. And what I realized was, wow, that's God's word living and active. So the next morning, here's what we did. We sat around, and I want you to think about this for a second too. Think of all the different ways that boss man camp guy could have talked to me about that little infraction, right? I mean, think about the myriad of ways that could have turned that exchange into, wow, that was kind of rude, or that was whatever, or instead, this guy, a little bit older, just had the wisdom to just like make a really clear command that I followed. He did it in a kind way. He gave me a reason for it, and it just was this really smooth interaction. Parents of small children, parents of children of any age, actually, it is on us as the olders to show our kids, to show those under our influence, here is God's word living and active while camping. Like it's all around us. It was this faith-inducing moment to just go, wow, we've been spending our whole time this week looking at our words. And here was a guy uh, that, that I'm not even sure he was a believer or not, but he just, ex- he just expressed the wisdom of this ancient proverb right here in the middle of camping. I got an opportunity yesterday as we drove out. I, just, I looked at him and I, probably his wife. I just said, hey, thanks for a great week. Like they were just great campground hosts to us. And it was a picture of the very thing we'd been looking at. Let me show you from Luke 8. I've spent some time thinking about this, but this is there for the taking for any of us. But let me show you in Luke 8 how God's word is living, active, and effectual. Okay, here it is. God's word in Luke 8 so far that we've been seeing is this. It's it's creating a crowd. God's word is healing the sick. God's word is raising the dead. It's shattering doubts and forgiving sin. The word of God is creating a massive harvest of good fruit. In fact, according to Jesus' story about the four soils, a hundredfold is produced when the tiny little good seed of the word of God lands on good soil of a soul. God's word is changing loyalties. 
couple of weeks ago, we saw that God's word is actually creating a new family. It's creating a family that's going to last forever. Remember, uh, hey, your mother and brothers are at the door. They want to come backstage, Jesus. We say, you know what? Those who are in my inner circle, those who are my family, my mother and brothers are those not just who hear the word of God, but who hear and obey my words. God's word is living, active, and effectual. Now, those are all some really positive things. Let me say this, that the word of God also does some things that we don't tend to like. Here's the passage this morning. The word of God also leads you into terrifying storms. That's what we're going to see this morning. Luke chapter 8, verse 22, follow along. One day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out and they sailed and, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and water, and they obey him? Jesus invites out into the stormy, scary seas. Now, in this passage, could the storm be metaphorical? Could it point to something greater than an actual storm? Quite possibly, Often Jesus was, would teach in situations. He would use circumstances to take something very, very concrete and he would lead them into deeper spiritual truth and deeper realities. But here's a point of good biblical investigation. It's talking about a historical event. This is an actual event that Luke recorded in the life of Jesus and his disciples. So for this morning, the predominant focus is going to be actual wind and actual waves, actual boat, actual water splashing around. We're going to look at the actual storm that Jesus invited them out into. Obviously, if you never step foot on a boat, hate the water, and never go near a lake, you'll be able to grab hold of this. Because disciples through the ages have said, yeah, I've been in my own kind of storm. It wasn't in a boat. It was. But for this morning, we're going to look very clearly at this storm. So what did happen? Jesus invites his followers out into this. He's the one that gave the invitation. Let's go over to the other side. These are seasoned fishermen. Not all of them, but several of the disciples were fishermen by profession, which means probably from the time they were small boys, they had spent time on lakes dealing with boats and sails and wind and storms. And these are grown fishermen who are now crying like babies for their very lives. So this is a significant storm. There's actual real danger happening here. Jesus is absent. He appears to be sort of sleeping on the job. In fact, there's an accusational tone that, that Mark records. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record the same incident. And Matt, I think it's Mark that says, don't you care that we're perishing? Don't you care? So there's sort of this accusation, like where were you? Now we just spent, uh, there's, there's been no better sermon prep. I did most of this prep two weeks ago so that I could have a vacation last week. But there was no better preparation for this text than to go camping by a lake the entire week. That's where I spent my entire week. We got home last night. And uh, the scariest thing that happened weather-wise 
was uh, we were sitting around you know, the campfire at one point, and a gust of wind came off the lake and took our quick shade and turned it into a kite for about three seconds, and we all jump up and grab the corner, um, and that's it. I won't remember that storm more than about three more days. I'm only remembering it now because I'm telling you. That one's going to fly away. What I want you to do is this. I want you to go back to the last time, or maybe the most significant storm or weather thing that happened to you. I say weather thing because we're in earthquake country. Like I grew up here. So to me, it's not hurricanes I'm scared of. We don't name like Barry. We don't name our earthquake. They just happen. But what was the last weather thing that you went through that was like, whoa, I mean, it was significant. It wasn't just a a rainstorm. So I want you to kind of take yourself and, and place yourself there. There's something really powerful about storms or weather patterns that have the ability to shrink us very, very quickly, isn't it? All of our pride and all of our sort of largeness can sort of be shrunk. I do this just walking through Yosemite Valley. You kind of look up at granite cliffs and you sort of get this sense of of your own smallness. But a storm adds this element of helplessness. In that moment, if you've ever been in something that really got your heart rate beating and maybe your palms sweaty and you, you kind of began to wonder, like, where is this going? There's a helplessness that overcomes you, isn't there? I mean, there's no expert in the world that can take, you know, you can feel safe in your Hummer or or your big heavy SUV until you're in, you know, a category four storm somewhere. And you're like, I know that these things can just be, be chucked like, like nobody's business. So I want you to sort of take yourself to an actual weather storm, weather situation that you've lived through, um, because that's where these disciples were at. So... If the disciples are in the boat, and several of them are professional fishermen, it, it may have gone something like this. Um, I'm not a nervous flyer by any stretch of the imagination. I fly, and I, I kind of like roller coasters, so to me it's all it adds to the spice of the flight a little bit. As I'm flying, um, if, if, I ever, if I ever experience some turbulence and we're kind of doing this or that, early ones don't bother me one bit. But if they start getting gnarly at all, here's what I do. If I'm reading a book or whatever, I look up and I look at the staff on the airplane. My father-in-law was a pilot his whole career. I tend to strike up conversations with, with, with flight attendants. Just, hey, where are you stationed? Whatever. And most of the time, I mean 95% of the time, what do they do when there's turbulence? They keep pouring coffee. They keep just doing their job. They're just doing their little deal. They're pushing their cart, whatever. If a flight attendant's face ever gets nervous or ever goes like this, that's my cue. That's my cue to freak out a little bit. Like other people, I'm sitting next to someone and the, the slightest thing, ah! you know, like they just, I mean, the slightest thing, are like, oh, this is going to be a long flight because every bump, they're going to be freaking out. I don't freak out until the flight attendants freak out. In that boat, I bet you anything that the non-fishermen, those who are tax collectors, land lovers, whatever, when the fishermen are freaking out, I mean, the whole boat's got to be in a panic. Do you see it? I mean, they've got to be just going, whoa, if the fishermen are freaking out, we're going to for sure freak out. So they are in utter panic mode, and the question on their mind had to have been this. Where is Jesus when it counts? I mean, we've left everything. We've been following this guy. He's been doing miracles. He's helping all kinds of other people. Who are we? Chop liver? I mean, this is our hour of need. Where's Jesus in all of this? And where is he? He's asleep. He's not immediately present in their hour of need, in their desperate time where they're fearing for their life. Jesus invited them out there, and then he's not there to help. Now, as 
Jewish boys growing up, this would have been their songbook, the Psalms. And Psalm 44, may, maybe they began to sing a little tune in their head. I'm not sure. But, uh, Lord, why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Wake up. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget? We're not going to talk about it here, but you can discuss it amongst yourselves or just ponder it yourself. But what do you make of a sleeping Savior? What do you make of a Jesus that invites them out and then goes and sleeps and doesn't immediately jump in and help them with that? Interesting question. Once you're back on shore, once you've survived whatever turmoil you've been, once the shaking stops after an earthquake and you're like, okay, we're good, there's sort of a perspective that that happens with that, isn't there? Like in the middle of that, in the middle of bouncing and bobbing and throwing all over the place, it's hard to gain perspective. But once you're safely back on shore and you begin to look back and reflect, there's some perspective that can begin to happen. It's interesting with Jesus because one of the things about that, that he's just a master of is taking a situation and there are, there are lessons that we can learn that we, know, we don't need to take any notes for. We don't need to memorize principles. We don't need repetition. They happen and they are like embedded in us forever. The reason I told you to take yourself back to the last scary storm is for some of you are like, easy. I know my most terrifying weather thing. It was this. And you can actually almost feel it. Like it's, it's written into your body. If it was a terrifying lightning storm, uh, which is a true story it's for another time, I'm swimming with kids at Hume Lake and a mountain storm comes up and there's lightning happening all over the place. That was terrifying to me. I had the lives of these kids in my mind and I'm like, shoot, where's Google when I need it? Like what are you supposed to do in the middle of a lake? And my intern comes rowing over in a metal rowboat. I'm like, all I know is you should go away. I I don't want you nearby. I don't know what I should do, but please leave. So whatever your weather thing is, there are are lessons that are sort of like in there. Jesus, Jesus, in a very few short verses, this little snapshot of life, there's some things that go on in this text that you know these disciples just go, whoa, like lesson learned. And they, they are left asking this question, who is this? What just happened? Not only do we see the nature of God in Jesus, but what Luke is showing us, and this is the first time in his gospel where he's showing us a miracle about nature, that Jesus is sovereign. Jesus is Lord over nature. So not only do we see the nature of God in Jesus, but that that Jesus is, in fact, God of nature. Uh, it's really interesting to, uh, to, to, to think about this. It's interesting to think about Jesus' response in this. So the disciples are freaking out. Uh, they probably weren't calm. There's a huge contrast between sleeping, peaceful Jesus and raging storm and raging disciples. Um, you with younger kids, um, what is your fleshly response? What is your first response when you are woken up earlier than you need to wake up by your small child that's requesting something? This is a place of truth. This is a place of safety, right? It's a sanctuary. I'll tell you mine because I just went camping. You know what? You know what kids do when you're camping? They wake up with the sun. They're super excited to be in a tent. They want to be awake. Guess who doesn't want to be awake? Me. My first thought when I'm woken up by small children when I'm camping is not to lay hands on them, bless them, pray for them, thank them for the gift of waking me up early. 
my thoughts are different. I'm just going to leave it at that. But I experienced this. You know what Jesus doesn't do? He's woken up from a, sounds like a pretty good sleep. He doesn't snap at the kids. Doesn't yell at the friends. Doesn't shame them. It's also interesting that he doesn't even address them at all. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't have them sit in twos on either side of the back end of the boat. He doesn't launch into a parable or a sermon in the moment. He doesn't stand on the bow and do like a ninja move and wave his arms and do something demonstrative. He simply wakes up, appears, and he speaks to the weather. And the weather listens. If you've ever been in a a storm, you know there's just noise. There's just loudness and noise that goes on with it. And again, to have that quiet down in an instant with a simple shh rebuke from Jesus... Man, again, just quite a sight to like really put ourselves there. So I wonder for the disciples, I wonder it for myself, what does this teach us about Jesus? Does that bring comfort to you or does that bring terror to you? The more I've pondered this, the more it's sort of a mix of both of those to me. The passage goes on to to look at just two really rich, potent questions. Look at verse 25. Here's Jesus' question for them. He said to them, where is your faith? The way Luke writes this, Jesus' question is sort of the the climax to the story. And as I thought about that, I thought, wow, it's really the climax of everyone's story. I don't care what you think about the Bible or Jesus. Maybe you're uncertain about Christianity or God in general. But where you place your faith is the crux of your story. It really is the climax of your story. Some of you can point to the fact that you placed your faith in a company or a boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse, or some other leader. And you can write your life story. You could say, here was what my life was like before that. Here was what my life was like after I discovered that that person wasn't who they said they were, that that company wasn't what they said they were. And my faith was misplaced. Some of our stories really are about the fact that we've placed our faith in ourselves, right? That we've trusted our gauge on things, our inner voice, our conscience, whatever we would call it. And some of us can say, wow, my story is such that uh, I lived my life with me in the driver's seat for, for so long, and then I yielded control to God, and I found Jesus, I built a relationship with Him. And my life is literally defined by, by where my faith was placed. And I can think of my life in those terms. Jesus rebukes the storm, but he also gives this rebuke to the disciples. In fact, one of the great things to do, is free online as well, but look for a harmony of the Gospels. A harmony of the Gospels is you punch in Luke 8, uh, 8.22, and it'll show you where that shows up in Matthew and Mark, if it shows up at all. And it does show up in all three. And one of the things when you read that is, kind of like right now, if, if I were to you know, ask three different family members in our family, how was vacation? We would all give you different accounts. They would all be the same vacation, but just different explanations of it, right? So Mark adds this. Mark and Matthew both um, add this. When, when Jesus says, where is your faith? Here's what he prefaces with. He says, why are you so afraid? Why are you so afraid, disciples? Where is your faith? Luke doesn't record that. But there's a, there's a, there's a, a rebuke tone to it. There's an implication that there should have been faith. I'm right here with you. I'm the one who invited you over. In fact, I said, let's go to the other side. Implied in that is a promise that that we're going to get to the other side. 
Why are you so afraid? Where is your faith? Let me ask you, when a storm hits, where does your faith go? Where is your faith placed? I think two different categories of people are those who have misplaced faith. Misplaced faith is those who have taken their faith and sort of their trust and their hope and their help. And instead of the refrain we just sang, which is, I lift my eyes, my help comes from the Lord, they have placed it on something else. Displaced faith is this. It's the parable of the four soils. Remember, one of the soils um, is that which people believe for a short period of time, and then the storm hits, and it it, it reveals that it wasn't very deep-rooted. Some people believe Jesus, they add him on as sort of a smorgasbord. I'll try Jesus. I'll I'll try this. Heck yeah. And then the storms have hit, and, and either someone or something has displaced King Jesus from his rightful throne and leadership and loving guiding in the life, and something else has taken the place. One of the soils says that the the cares of this world, the pleasures of this world, come and choke that out. There's ways to sort of displace God from our life. We've all experienced that. I want you to jot down. Actually, it's it's in your community group question, so you can look at it later if you want, or you can turn there. But in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19, there's a really powerful little snapshot. And there's an instruction here, and there's a warning here that has everything to do with this little example about where our faith is. 1 Timothy 1.19 says this. Listen to this. Cling to your faith in Christ. If you're in the middle of a storm right now, maybe God's message for you this morning is quite simply, cling to your faith in Christ. There's a role for you to play. Cling to your faith in Christ and keep your conscience clear. This is Paul writing to young Pastor Timothy. Cling to your faith in Christ and keep your conscience clear. Listen to this. For some people have deliberately violated their consciences. Watch this. And as a result, their faith has been shipwrecked. They've deliberately violated their consciences and their faith has become shipwrecked. Do you see the active command for us? Cling to our faith in Christ And keep our conscience clear. What a beautiful morning prayer, evening reflection that would be, wouldn't it? If just this week for for kicks, you just thought, let me develop a new habit. Let me start off the morning just saying, God, I'm going to cling to my faith. I mean, the things that I say here didn't feel true today. I actually do fear the war. I actually am terrified of the storm that I think is approaching. But I'm going to sing forth what I, what, I, what I know you to be true to come through on your promises. So I'm going to cling to my faith in you today, Christ. And I want to keep my conscience clear. At the end of the day, you can reflect and just say, God, I want to have a clear conscience. I want to have nothing between us. Good little exercise. Now, I want to show you something really, really powerful. Again, older Paul, pastor, writing to younger Timothy. Mind you, these letters were meant to be read to the churches publicly. He just said that some people have violated their conscience and therefore have shipwrecked their faith. Then he goes on to name two people. Hymenaeus and Alexander are two examples. He goes on to name them publicly. I threw them out, he says, and handed them over to Satan so they might learn not to blaspheme God. Unless you've been a parent, grandparent, or a watcher of children, you just think this sounds so harsh. If you've been a parent, 
you understand sometimes you do short-term pain for long-term gain. Paul would never throw someone out. He would never hand someone over to Satan unless it were to be a means of discipline, saying you're out from under the protection of the church so you can, you can live the life the way you've wanted to live it and to draw them back under and say, man, God's way is way better than my way. Really powerful. In our culture, we think, oh, they named them publicly? Yes, they did. Friends, we as a church, we as a church family are taught how to govern ourselves as God's family by the scriptures. I'm going to move on. I went into a whole thing on church discipline last service, and I used the word dismember, which got people off track. So I'm going to, uh, I'm going to move on. Jesus' question for his followers then is a question for his followers today, and that is this. Where is your faith at? That is, what kind of faith do you have? Isn't it really easy to follow when seas are smooth and everything's kind of going your way? You're like, yay God, hashtag blessed, all that stuff, right? There's nothing like a storm to reveal like where your faith really is. Storms have this incredible power to do that. In fact, the ones that hit the disciples are just like the ones that hit us. They're unwelcome. No one welcomes a storm. I'm feeling pretty strong. Bring it on, God. Give me some hard times. I've, I've, I never have people ask for counsel. How do I get some more hard times, Dave? Things are too good and comfortable right now. They are unwelcome. They're also unexpected. I mean, land-loving disciples would have been, uh-uh, if they knew the storm was coming, they probably would have said, I'll, I'll walk. Thank you very much. Our storms in our life, unwelcome, unexpected, and guess what? They're out of our control. But lastly, they're revealing. Storms reveal what's going on. If you're in a storm right now, let me invite you to inspect your storm for a second, because not all storms are equal. Think about this. The storm talked about in Luke 8 is at the invitation of Jesus. That is this. The Word of God can and does lead you into terrifying situations. But you might be in a storm because exactly the opposite reason. God invited you to go right and you decided to go left. And you're now in a storm. Anyone heard of Jonah? Jonah's in a pretty severe storm. God invited him to go right. He said, "Uh uh-uh, I hate Ninevites. I'm prejudiced. I don't want to go be good to them. I'm going left. Some of our storms flat out, are just rebellion against God. If you're in a storm and you can trace it back and God gives you eyes to see, if you're at a place of of honesty, you say, God, help me see why this storm is here, and you can trace it back, and it's because of your own sin, your own rebellion, your own going left when God said clearly to go right, you're violating of your conscience, knowing the right way to go with knowledge, that's what conscience means, with full knowledge, you're like, I hate Ninevites, I'm going left. If you're in that kind of storm, hear me, Repent. Repent means to turn around. It just means to change your mind. That's what's needed in that kind of storm. If you're in a storm, because as you trace it back, you're like, no, it's crystal clear. God's word led me here. I'm not running from sin. God, I'm, I'm following your, I'm RSVPing to what you're leading me to do. Then hear me. You know what you should do in that storm? Cling to your faith in Jesus. Hold on tight. Disciples got something right. They called out to Jesus. That's a really smart thing to do. 
That's the kind of thing you should do in that kind of storm. Let me ask you this. How did you respond to your last crisis? I just came back online last night. I've already discovered in a short few hours several of our church family members that have just had crazy storms go off in their life this week. I knew nothing about it until a few hours ago. How are you responding right now in the crisis you're in? How did you respond to your last crisis? You know the Bible tells us to investigate our own faith periodically. Listen to this from 2 Corinthians 13. It says, examine yourself to see if your faith is genuine. Test yourselves. Surely you know that Jesus Christ is among you. If not, you have failed the test of genuine faith. We are to examine and test ourselves. You know what happens? If we don't examine and test ourselves, God lovingly comes in and there's nothing like a storm to kind of examine and test yourself and get real with yourself. Sometimes it's the Lord's discipline saying, you can run, son, Jonah, but I've got you. I see you. You're not running from me. And God's being a loving father, disciplining you back on the right path. When someone tells you God will never give you more than you can handle, don't believe them. God often gives you way more than you can handle. Way more. You know why? Because it's only in those moments that you learn this lesson. Man, God, you're the one who's capable. You're the one who's able to comfort. This is way beyond me. There's no way I could take credit for this. This is way beyond my expertise, way beyond my ingenuity, way beyond my capability. It's clear that you led me here, and I see new vantage point of who you are from this place. I never could have learned on the safety of being on the shore. That's why some people, you young people, Fork over a five-buck latte for an older person in our church someday. Don't do a lot of talking. Do a lot of listening. Just say, hey, you've been a Christian longer than I have. I want to learn from you. What are some of the storms you've weathered? You engage people. You newly married people. Go find someone who's, who's been married for a while. Say, hey, what can I expect? What are some of the storms you've weathered? I just want to learn. That's why people who, 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 have, who have mastered sort of the, the wisdom of James, where it says, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. It's not because you're just so thrilled. Woohoo! I'm lonely again. Love it. Pain, bring it on. It's not that. It's that there's such a deep trust in relationship that you go, you know what? God's doing something. I already know. God sees what's around the bend that I don't see. So he's prepping me for that. I trust that. This stinks, but God's not going to leave me here any longer than, than, I, than I need. He won't delay. We just sang that. So there actually can be a joy that comes with that. Some of you are in the midst of a really bad storm right now. Let me just point you to a resource that lives online. We've been podcasting for most of the life of the church. This is a series that we did, um, I don't even know when, years ago. Some of you sat through it, but it was about six weeks and the whole idea was this. How, do we, how are we faithful through the storms of life? Um, what, we, what we see in the life of Jesus is uh, not only did he not set up his life not to suffer, um, he actually steered and pointed his life such that it brought additional suffering on, and he suffered well. One of his promises to you that I've been in many of your homes, I've never seen this one plastered on the wall neatly in a poster. All who desire to live godly in this life will be persecuted. Oh, I love that promise of Jesus. Let's embroider that. 
Let's put that up. It's a true statement. In this life, you will have troubles. I mean, these are the promises of Jesus. Just being alive, you have troubles. But get this, you throw the Jesus jersey on, you invite new levels of persecution. You invite new kinds of troubles that come your way. So Jesus promised this for us. This turbulent series looks at this. There are, there are many things in life. In fact, Jesus assures us of this, that if you get on the plane with Jesus, he's taking you on a journey, and there are many things that are going to happen between getting on board and landing safely on the other side um, that, are, that are non-eternal life-threatening. They will scare the daylights out of you. They will be really, really challenging. And the Bible provides God's Spirit's God's Spirit with us provides all the means that we have to buckle up and endure whatever the plane journey has. Some of you have been caught in comparing your plane journey to the plane journey of your siblings over here. Don't do it. God's got you on a journey, and there will be dips and doodles and rough stuff that goes on. And some of the things covered in this series are pain. Some of you live with chronic pain. I'm an absolute wimp when it comes to a headache. I pray for you because being in pain is like sleep deprivation, which I'm a not fan of, but I'm enduring that. It changes you. It's hard. Some of you are lonely to your core, and there's just a deep loneliness that you wrestle with and struggle with. Some of you have a brokenness, and it's been hard to deal with. We, we look at all of these in this series. The last one is when someone has wronged you. Some of your life stories are that someone wronged you in a significant way, and it's been very hard to shake that. God gives us instruction. God gives us comfort in how to suffer well through that. So I just throw that out to you as a, as a means that might be helpful to you. This last week, I did something that, again, if you can kind of get... Um, if you can get your head around looking at your storm, looking at the, the difficult things in life from a loving Heavenly Father's perspective, you, you, you see things in a different way. I have two five-year-olds, and um, we, we were at a, at a giant lake, and, um, and they did something that was fairly terrifying for them. <laughs> you know when kids are like, <laughs> like, they're laughing and crying, and it's hard to even tell like which mode they're in, but they're just, like everything in them is just sort of welling up. And the two five-year-olds were swimming around in the, in the deep part of the lake, way out at the jumping rock from, from, where, from our shore. And they had their little floaties on, but they were way off by themselves. And, and, and the start of the week, they, they wanted to cling to that rock. They wanted to cling to the shore. And, uh, and as a loving father, I took them way beyond their comfort zone for a couple of reasons. One is we are a water-loving family. I need my five-year-olds to be water-safe. So I, I just, I want them to learn to swim. Some of our kids, you didn't have to teach. You look around, they're like, oh, look at him. He's doing butterfly and doing flip turns. Okay, I guess he knows how to swim. Others, you got to push a little bit, not metaphorically, literally. You just give them a little shove. Um, our kids got, you know, kind of terrified and then came out the other side of it. Uh, every day we went four-wheeling. I've got a Jeep. And so we were out there and, and, and a few days ago I have some cousins. We had some, we had some cousins coming in to visit for a while and so... So we're all doing this little fire road stuff. And we got to this one hill, and I got out of the Jeep, and I talked to both cars, and I looked at the, the cousins. My kids already heard this spiel, but I looked at them. 
I said, we're going to do something called four-wheel drive low. Anyone know what that means? Uh-uh. It means you're going to be scared. That's what it means. So I look at them. I said, look at me. Uncle Dave loves you. Uncle Dave's really safe. You're going to be okay. And you're going to be terrified. Are we good? Uh-huh. We are, Uncle Dave. We started going up like this. There's a cliff over here. We're doing this. Da, 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 da. Here's what happens with that. When you put those deposits in, you know what's happening is relationship is being built. What happens at the campfire after a day like that? Oh, it was awesome. We were about to die. And then da, 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 and a rock flew up and hit me in the head. It was so cool. We were taking jumps. We were on two wheels. I mean, just all kinds of stuff. But there's this, all this excitement because you've gotten through the sort of scary, terrifying thing together. And what's happening is relationship is being formed. And parents know this just, just like, sort of instinctively that, that we want our kids to learn to trust us. We know there's coming a day when they get older when, when they don't want to hear from mom and dad anymore. Mom and dad walk in the room and they involuntarily go, like, we haven't even said anything yet. They're just, they just roll their eyes. They're like, I know I'm supposed to do that. I'm a teenager, right? And we want to be able to communicate truth to them and say, listen, your dad's done nothing but try to tell you the truth for your benefit your entire life. Hear the wisdom of your father. Don't do this. Or do do this. And then they're living their own story. They get to make their own choice. But you know what happens is those little deposits of trust begin to instill, sort of sink deep down into us that, you know what, my father's trustworthy. And again, this is why people can actually consider it joy when they're terrified. Because they go, man, I'm so confident God's with me in this. I'm so confident God hasn't, hasn't left me in this. I'm taking my cues that Jesus isn't freaking out yet, so I'm not going to freak out yet. And there's this deep trust that can, that can go on. There's one final question that this verse gets to, and it's, and it's really pronounced, and that's from the disciples. Who is this? They go from fearing the storm, then the storm passes, and they're like, whoo, and now they're fearing Jesus. Who is in our boat? Like, who is this that just says some words and the winds and waves stop? We've never seen anything like this. A lot like us, a lot like me, the disciples are both marveling at what they witness, but they're also pretty dense as to the identity of Jesus. And they're on a process. This is a big penetrating question. It's really, it's the main one Luke is getting at. Luke is getting at who is Jesus and what does he do? Two key passages that we've sort of, sort of set out with as guardrails for our series in Luke was this. A young man comes to Jesus and says, good teacher. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? He doesn't deny that he's good. He is good. He's pure good. He embodies good. And in his goodness, his godness is seen if you look for it carefully. So we know his identity is good. And what is he here to do? He says out of his own mouth, I came to seek and to save the lost. This is our series title. Kind of embedded into this is some of this messaging. The good doctor is what the red words read. It's kind of hard to see on this screen because of our aging projector. But built into the word good is God. But you have to look for it a little bit. That's Jesus. There's the nature of Jesus that he's both revealing and concealing, right? I mean, he speaks in parables. He says things like this. Hey, for those who have ears to hear, let me tell you a little story. And it's actually much more than a cute little story. There's some teaching in there. 
And in Jesus, just being who Jesus is, his deity is leaking out of him. Jesus has only a few short years with these disciples that he's training up. He's about to hand them a mission that that really all of humanity depends on its success. And little by little, what he's doing is he's taking them on a journey to begin to trust them and see who he is. Luke is answering the who is Jesus question by showing sort of a sampling of events. He doesn't write everything that happened with Jesus. He doesn't write every word Jesus ever spoke. He gives nuanced differences to what Matthew and Mark record. But what he's doing is he's walking through. Remember at the beginning, most excellent Theophilus, I've written an account for you so that you can see the things that have been accomplished among us. I want to show you who Jesus is. Here's a question for us. We ask this same question, who are you? If you've been a Christian for very long, you will ask this question in different seasons of your life. I became a Christian when I was 17. By the time I was 17, I had already heard about Jesus for most of my life. I understood Jesus. My decision to follow Christ was sincere and full-blown in that moment. I was completely surrendered. But I have gone through seasons of life where who I thought Jesus was, what I thought he was about, the ways that he worked, what he was all about and his timing was shattered in a moment. I go, whoa, who are you? Who am I in the boat with? Jesus, who are you? And then it takes shape and I begin to get new vantage points of who Jesus is. Hear me. This is not because I think I'm super spiritual or wise enough. I think it's purely by God's grace and purely his promise that he began a work in me and he's been faithful to complete it and he's given me the grace to keep clinging to my faith in Christ through different seasons. And when you suffer a severe loss, when you suffer some confusing storm that's not ending and you ask this question, who are you, Jesus? most often you will not get the answer that fits into your neat cubicle of what you have prescribed for who Jesus is. And guess what? That change is hard. Tie this into any relationship you know. John Thomas is sitting back here. I met John roughly 12 years ago. And when I first met John, I knew who John was as far as I knew him. I'd known him for a short period of time. So when I thought of John Thomas, I could think of who he was, some traits about him. And then some time passed, and I got to know John a little bit better. And then uh, we got to do some ministry together. And then we linked arms and have been through some storms together. We've played together. We've, we've done stuff together. And now when I think of John Thomas, it's way different than what I thought the first year of that. Why? Because that's the nature of relationships. So you either grow with that relationship, or when something's revealed about John that doesn't fit my preconceived notion of who John is and what Johnness should be about, I could just go, la, 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 I don't like that version of John. Give me the old John. And then we just stay stuck in my thing of John, and our relationship never grows from that point on. It just stays stuck in what I want John to be. Isn't that a parallel with Jesus? Uh, Jesus, I like you to be at my beck and call for when I need you. Um, Otherwise, sleeping quietly in the boat's good. I've got it handled until I don't. And when I do, come and shush things and then go back to sleep. And then we grow from that. (laughs) We go, hmm, Jesus isn't to be managed and controlled. He doesn't fit in our little box. Actually, Jesus is in control. So, So as you go through this life, don't fear when you suddenly don't know who Jesus is anymore. It's part of your growth in your relationship with him. Ask this question. Lean into this question. Who are you? 
Be okay with both marveling and fearing at the same time. I think that's actually uh, an appropriate response. Let me invite the band to, to come on up right now. You know, we've sung this song for a long time. Each of these attributes of God we're about to sing are scriptural. You can tie scripture to it. But here's what's interesting about music is the lyrics of this song actually take on sort of a different shape in the light of this text. With each of these attributes of God, think about the hurt and the storm that revealed God to be this way. A father to the orphan. Every orphan story starts with pain and brokenness and difficulty. So is it joyful and great that God's a father to the orphan? Amen. We love that part. God's a shelter from the storm. But that implies that you need a shelter because you're being pelted by the storm. So as we sing this lyric in light of this song, think about your current storm. Are you in rebellion? Repent. Are you, uh, are you invited into this? Then cling to your faith in Christ. Say, God, I trust you and walk with him through it. Would you close your eyes and just listen to this benediction from Hebrews 13? So fitting for our text this morning and for the song we're about to sing. Hebrews 13.20 says this, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.